If you didn't know, Jennifer Vincent, our normal music uh, leader, had hip surgery this week. She's doing well. Uh, you can continue to, to pray for her, pray for her family. She's not a very demanding patient, I'm sure. Before I get started uh, with the, the sermon, there's a couple of books I wanted to mention to you. One is this book here, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness uh, by Tim Keller. I mentioned it in last week's sermon, and we did not have any on the uh, book table, but they are now on the book table. This is a short little book, uh, but if you ever wanted to know just how incredibly self-absorbed you are, in case you had any doubt about that, uh, and you wanted to hear good, gospel-centered ways to begin to deal with your self-absorption problem that we all have, uh, this is a great little book. Uh, I would encourage you to pick it up. And then the other book, uh, I don't know if you've ever been so hot and thirsty and you went and you grabbed a drink that was, that was so cold... It was both refreshing and painful at the same time you've been there, okay? Uh, that is this book right here. It is The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's by Rosaria Butterfield. This is a fantastic book, and I can say that I'm only like two chapters in. Um, Rosaria Butterfield, actually, if you pick up anything by Rosaria Butterfield, you're doing well, okay? She is a, um, she's a former... Uh, lesbian women's studies professor at Syracuse University. Uh, a minister just invited her in, invited her into his home for dinner. And over the course of time, in uh, just through the through the work of hospitality, the Holy Spirit, as she began to read God's word, uh, she was converted and transformed. Her first book, uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, I would also highly recommend to you. Fantastic description of how. Uh, someone who comes to faith in Jesus uh, from really unlikely circumstances. But this this book is a, is a great runner-up to it. Great book. I would encourage you to pick this one up off the book table. Uh, she might even get a mention in today's sermon. So we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he founded in the ancient city of Corinth. And as I mentioned to you last week, Working through 1 Corinthians is kind of like a, a very difficult mountain climb. There are certainly parts of it, and we're going to read one today. Very challenging, but at the same time, when you reach the top of the mountain, very rewarding. Something that you're glad that you've gone through. So while uh, you may feel somewhat pummeled as you read this letter, I know that I have trying to prepare to preach this letter, yet also feel great rewarded to do so. So hopefully that's, uh, that's our experience as we work through this letter. Learning what it means to be a, a church, a community that's actually shaped by the gospel. Not by the values of the world around us, but by the values of Jesus himself. That's why we're going through this letter. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're reading along in the Pew Bible, it's page 954. Page 954. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as at present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach a very difficult text, we just ask for your help. For your help in understanding it. For your help in applying it. For your help in seeing Jesus in it and through it. Lord, would you draw us to yourself? Would you incline our hearts to you? Make us tender to you. And tender to your calling. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have to get here sooner or later. Very unfortunate that Zach chose to take his vacation on this Sunday. I punted this passage to him. But alas, my God. No, this is one of those uh, this is one of those hard passages, right? One of those very difficult parts of the Bible. It's one of those parts that we don't hear often. We probably don't read it very often. And when we do, it offends us, doesn't it? Uh, this one kind of. This one kind of hits us right between the eyes. Because here we have Paul telling the church to remove someone. To look at a person who has been a part of their church and tell them to, to leave. That they are no longer a part of the church. Not that they can't necessarily come to the church's gatherings, but that they are no longer considered a part of it. And they are to do this because this person's life does not reflect what he says he believes. And that's what Paul says, right? That, that we should disassociate from a person who says, I follow Jesus, but then by their lives repeatedly clearly demonstrate that they do not. That's what we call church discipline. And it is difficult. And it is hard. And so, as we go about this this morning, I want to go about it with some fear and trepidation. This is not 
one of those fun, feel-good sort of texts. But it's one uh, that we need to talk about and we need to embrace. It's even one that defines what it means to be a true church. That a true church practices what we call discipline. This passage raises all kinds of questions for us, right? Why is Paul being so ungracious? If Jesus forgives sin, which we believe he does, then why is Paul taking this sin so seriously? Are Paul and Jesus on different pages here? And, maybe even more than that, if everyone is a sinner, also something we believe as Christians, everyone is a sinner, then doesn't that mean everybody should be kicked out of the church? Why is this guy being singled out? Why is his behavior worse than mine or hers? Who has the right to judge another person? So, on the face of it, this passage might seem to be very inconsistent with the message of the gospel. The message of God's free grace in Jesus. Should this kind of discipline really have a place in the church? I'm thankful to Jonathan Lehman. I'm going to grab his book also. Uh, Jonathan Lehman writes a a short book on church discipline. It's not on the book table, but if you would like to to borrow it from me, you certainly can. Lehman uses this illustration. He says, imagine that a group of friends is playing soccer. And that among this group is a guy who used to play American football. Right, what we call football. And in the midst of the game, someone passes him the soccer ball, he picks it up with his hands, cradles it under his arm, and begins running down the field. What happened? The referee blows the whistle. Right, That's a foul in soccer. You don't touch the ball with your hands. But the guy looks kind of puzzled. Right? What, what have I done wrong? How would you explain to him what he's done wrong? You could just simply say, hey, listen, man, this game is called soccer. You don't touch the ball with your hands. Only the goalie can do that, so put it down and let's keep playing. And that would be true, right? You could convey it to him as he's simply broken a rule of the game, and we need to keep playing. And that would be true. That would be right. But you could go further. You could begin to explain more about the game of soccer. But actually, the definition of the game, the reason it's called football in every country but America, is that it is a game played with the feet. That the the joy of watching soccer is seeing what these athletes can do with just their feet. And so, from that point of view, this, this, this friend has not just broken a rule, but he's broken a rule that sits at the very definition of what makes soccer, soccer. That illustration begins to help us understand why Paul is taking sin so seriously. That the church, by its very definition, is a group of people who has been saved by and identified with Jesus. We are His new creation. And when we live counter to that, When we are dug in in our sin and refuse to deal with it, we call that being unrepentant, not wanting to deal with your sin. When we're dug into our sin, we're not simply breaking a rule, but we are breaking a rule 
That's at the very, we are, we are going against the very definition of who we say we are. It's not just that we've committed a foul, but we've committed a foul that goes against the very definition of what it means to be a group of people saved by Jesus. So what we're going to see is that Jesus gave his life to forgive sin and purify his people. We're just saying that in Rock of Ages, right? That, that Jesus uh, saves from wrath, He forgives sin, and He makes us pure. So we're saved from the, the reigning power of sin is broken and the condemning power of sin. It no longer condemns us and it no longer controls us. That's what Jesus died to accomplish. And since Jesus died to break the power of sin, we too must fight it in all its forms. When we find sin in our midst, both personally and corporately, we must fight against it. That is the nature. In, in, so far from going against the gospel of grace, that's actually what it means to live the gospel of grace. Three things you want to see. First, I think three things that we're called to in this passage. One, we're called to practice integrity with those on the inside. We're taught to engage with those on the outside. And we see we kind of flip-flop those. And then, how we practice integrity and how we engage, we actually learn from Jesus, right? We're going to be who Jesus has made us to be. So, practicing integrity with those inside. Integrity. The word means to be whole or undivided. So a person of integrity, a a whole person, is one whose life is consistent with their words. They're honest in the way that they live. They're transparent. Who they are here is who they are there. Who I am on this platform is who I am sitting in that chair. Now even as I say that, we kind of wrestle with that, don't we? Right? That's one of our chief struggles, is to be people of integrity. To be the same in public view and in private view. Okay? So, what's happening in Corinth? Why is this church not practicing this integrity? Paul tells us, he says in verse 1, There is sexual immorality among you, and other kind not even tolerated among pagans. That word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage. So outside of God's design for marriage, there is sexual immorality, all forms. Okay, and in this case, it happens to be a man who has his father's wife, most likely his stepmother. Now that was forbidden in the Old Testament, forbidden in the Old Testament law, but what's really shocking here is that even in Corinth, so when you think about Corinth, this was a crucial port city, it was also a new city, lots of new money, not a lot of, not a lot of tradition, so I want you to think maybe New York and Las Vegas combined. Okay, when you think about the stature as well as the immorality of the city, just combine those two. In Corinth, sexual morality was as normal as drinking water. Okay, that was just part of everyday life. But even in Corinth, this man was out of bounds. Even the even the loose social norms of Corinth would have found this sin disgusting. Right. Paul says, you guys are doing, you guys are allowing something that not even your neighbors are okay with. That's how far gone you are. But that's not even the worst problem. 
the worst problem, the real problem, is the attitude of the church towards this sin. The real problem is not that there's sin in the church. So let's go ahead and let's go ahead and deal with that first question. If the church is full of sinners, which we would agree that it is, then why isn't everybody kicked out? Why is this man singled out? And what we see is that the real problem isn't that there's sin in the church, that there are sinners in the church. That's going to be unavoidable. The real problem is their attitude towards the sin. Paul says, you are arrogant. You're puffed up. There's that word again, puffed up. You're inflated, even in the face of pretty heinous sin. You're boasting. He says, your boasting is not good. Not only are you giving this guy a pass, but you actually seem to be bragging about it. What is wrong? Now we should say that that we want churches and we want to be a church that is a hospital for sinners. That's one way to look at church. Communities where broken people find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Communities where we can be honest about our brokenness, constantly reminding each other that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, That's the identity of the church. We want to be honest and transparent even about our brokenness and our sinfulness. Because we know that because of what Jesus has done, the final verdict has been given. So that means that church should be the last place where we hide. Church should be the last place where we cover up. Because we don't have to. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be ashamed. Church should be the one place where we're finally honest, where we come clean. We don't celebrate brokenness, but we do own it. Does that describe most churches you know? Does it describe us? We don't want to celebrate brokenness, but we do want to own it. We want to be honest about it. We want to confess it to one another. So that means that when we hurt each other, we don't excuse our sin by saying, well, that's just who I am. Sorry about that. We don't excuse our sin. No, what we do is we put our pride to death by going to that person and by saying, I've wronged you, I've offended you, would you please forgive me? Paul says in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That, that's our posture, right? That, we want that to be our attitude towards our fellow sinners. That I give you grace when we are honest with each other about our sin. So in the gospel-shaped church, we deal honestly with our own sin and graciously with the sins of others. But that's not happening in court. They're not being honest about their sin, right? Paul says you're puffed up when you should be crying. You're boasting when you should be grieving. Think about it. If your leg was infected with flesh-eating bacteria, would you go to a party and celebrate it? And be like, yes! You've got an infected leg. Woohoo! Right? No, of course not. Paul says that's what's going on. You have an infection, and rather than dealing with it, you're letting it run wild. This ought not to be. 
Instead of grieving over sin in the body, they seem to be boasting about it, perhaps reveling in their freedom or reveling in their tolerance. We put up with all kinds of things here, right? We don't really know exactly how they're boasting. But we do know this, that if this man had come to the church, come to his fellow brothers and sisters, and said, what I have done is not good. It makes my heart sick. This chapter would read very differently. It's not, it's not that we don't show grace to sinners, but it is that we have we have to deal honestly with sin, especially when we're not repentant of it. If this man had come to the body and said, "Hey, I'm sorry. I have brought shame on the name of the church, shame on the name of Jesus. Please help." This chapter would read very differently. But that's not the position of this man, and it's not the position of the church. And Paul says, you got to fix it. And the way he tells them to fix it, four different times he talks about removing the man from the church. Is Paul and Jesus on different pages? I mean, is Paul being harsher than Jesus would be? Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, Right? Is Paul preaching a different message? Does he not believe in the same grace that Jesus offers? No. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives uh, three steps for how to deal with a person who refuses to fight or uh, fight for sin. Right? Uh, there's, a, there's a whole process which ends with the person actually being removed from the body. She's not living with integrity and honesty. So rather than owning her brokenness and taking it to the cross, she's saying, I don't need the cross. I don't need the gospel. I'm good the way that I am. And friend, if you don't need the gospel, and the church is a gospel-shaped community, then there's really no point for you to be a part of church. That's really what's going on here. It's not that Paul is being harsh. He's saying, this person who's in the church is living in a way that is not part of the church. Right? They're saying they don't need the gospel. They don't need to be transformed by Jesus. So go ahead and acknowledge with words what's already true in action. Go ahead and confirm what's already true. That a person who lives this way is not a brother or a sister. What's the point? Why would we do that? Why would we not just... Why, why would we not let it go? Look at verse 4. Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does Paul, what does Paul say, say the reason is for removing this person? He says, so their flesh will be destroyed, but their spirit may be saved. Church discipline is not punishing, it is restoring. It's not punitive, it's restorative. Paul's aim is not to teach this person a lesson, right? He's not trying to wrap them on the knuckles and tell them they're a bad person. What he wants to happen 
is that they would be removed from the church and that they would see just how deadly their sin is. Right? When Paul says, deliver him over to Satan so that the flesh may be destroyed. He's not talking about his body. He's talking about the part of our nature. When, when Paul uses that word, the flesh, he's talking about the part of our nature that runs away from God. Right? The part of our nature, the, the old man that doesn't want to follow God. Paul says, remove this man from the church so that that part of him is destroyed, that his spirit may be saved. Paul is not giving up on this person. And when we use church discipline in the right way, it's not used to give up on somebody and say, out of hell with you. Our goal is to restore them. Our goal is to see them come back. <clears throat> to see that that kind of life will only end in death and destruction. We want people to experience life as God has intended it to be. Is that not the highest form of love? Isn't that grace at work? When you see your child running for the street, do you say, I'm sure they'll be fine. I probably shouldn't say anything. Don't want to embarrass them in front of the neighbors. Of course not. You call them back and you go get them if you have to. One of our boys a few weeks ago was playing a little bit too close to the street that runs in front of our house. Like good parents, we were inside and had no idea. <laughs> so I get a, a ring on the doorbell and I open it up and a neighbor who had been driving by said, hey man, I just want to let you know uh, he's getting a little close and I look up and he is in fact like two steps away from a busy street. Uh, now, I could have said to my neighbor, who do you think you are? Get off my property. This is none of your business. No, but what do I say? Thank you for wanting to save the life of my son. That's not the opposite of love. It's its highest form. Did not Jesus do this? Does Jesus not come after us? Is that not what the incarnation is? That God, so far from leaving us in our sin comes after us, takes on human flesh, dies so that we might be brought out of sin. See, when the church practices discipline, what she's really doing is living out the gospel of Jesus. We're calling people back. We're calling people to Christ. And if they continue to refuse, we say, okay, then stand to the outside. You are not of us. So far from being ungracious and unloving, intervening is really the most loving thing we can do. We want to be people who live with integrity. We, we want our lives and our words to be the same. And we want to be people who are humble by that. We know how difficult that is. Right? You're never a greater hypocrite than when you stand behind a pulpit and preach to a room full of people. Like I just had my kids running therapy one day because I was a different person up here than I was at home. Because I am sometimes, right? We want to be people who can be honest about that and encourage one another in that. But we don't want to encourage one another to stay in the shadows. That does no one any good and it disparages the cross of Christ. If we're shaped by the gospel, we'll be a community of people who help one another to live with integrity, which means I can come to you and say, Brother, I am fighting for my life. And you can say, Jesus loves you. Let me help you.
Let's practice integrity on the inside. But let's also engage with those on the outside. Paul has something surprising to say. He has, this, he has a clarification he needs to make at the end of this passage. Because here's what our tendency is, right? We have a tendency to make the holy huddle, right? Uh, where we gather around, where we look at each other and we say, I'm okay, are you okay? Yep, I'm okay, right? Let's do some religious things so we can all be okay together. We make this little holy huddle. We avoid honesty and integrity. But then we look at those outside the huddle and we say, oh, they're not okay. We should not spend time with them. I'm okay, they're not okay. So Paul clarifies some things for us. Look at verse 9. Let's see. Here we go. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, we just have that on the face of it. We think, got it. Okay. Don't talk to sexually immoral people. Got it. Then Paul clarifies. He says, I didn't mean, verse 10, the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Isn't it interesting that greed comes up next? You know, the Bible has a lot more to say about how we use our money than how we use our bodies. And yet we usually give greed a pass and blast sexual immorality. What if we talked about money near as much? The way that we misuse our money and worship our money and depend on our money uh, just as much as we blasted the sexually immoral lives of other people. But Paul says, I didn't mean the people of this world, the sinners of this world, because if I did, you actually need to go find another world. Right? You have to move to somewhere else where there weren't any sinners. And that's impossible. Look down at verse 12. He says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. We flip that, don't we? Paul says, hey listen, what have I to do with judging outsiders? God will care, will, will take care of that. We need to do a better job of judging those inside. We, we flip that, right? We give each other a pass and then throw grenades at the people outside. Right? So if you stand outside the church, um, we typically flip what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm not saying don't associate with sexually immoral people of this world because you have to find somewhere else to live. I'm saying don't associate with someone who calls themselves brother or sister and continues in their sin. Isn't that interesting? The greatest danger to the church is not the sin outside of us. Do we really believe that? We really believe that the greatest threat to the church is outside of her walls. You know, the loss of religious liberty, um, the decaying moral culture, and I'm not and I'm not saying that those things aren't happening. Right? We are seeing a loss of religious liberty. Uh, we do believe that culture is decaying morally quickly. But those are not a great threat to the church. In fact, the church has thrived in the face of those things in the past. The greatest danger to the church is the inside. And we won't live with integrity on the inside. We're not different. We're not different from the culture around us. And so it's no great shock when we find ourselves ineffective. Because we don't stand apart. 
We stand in the same vein. It's our difference that causes us to engage. It's our difference that actually draws people to us. Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Don't associate with a brother or sister who refuses to deal with their sin. What about I do with judging those outside? We avoid judging those on the inside, but we have plenty to say for those on the outside. Paul's saying, turn that around. Hold yourselves to a higher standard. And don't expect people who don't know Jesus to live like they did. Rather, engage with them. That's what it means when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, when he shared the table with them, he had no illusions in his mind that they were righteous people. Jesus engaged with those outside. So should we. What might this look like? A pastor at uh, one of our sister churches in Los Angeles tells a story. Uh, this is a friend of his was trying to get to know his neighbor. Uh, we'll call the friend Jim. Right? So the Christian's name is Jim. We'll call the neighbor Steve. Uh, and Jim asks Steve, he says, Hey, Greg, good to meet you. What is it you do? Now, unbeknownst to Jim, Steve is in the adult film business. This is a true story. Okay? And so Jim just asked Steve, like, hey, so what do you do? He's like, I'm in movies. And Jim goes, oh, great. I'd love to see some of your work. <laughs> Steve says, mm, I, don't, I don't think you would. Jim's like, no, really, I, I enjoy movies. I've I, I probably seen some of your stuff. I bet it's really good. And Steve says, Leaven is fermented dough that would be held. 
held over a week and then used to bake up bread. Um, and in the Bible, it came to be used as a sign of corruption, right? But if there was leaven, the, the whole thing was corrupted. Uh, an illustration I like to use is I, um, if I'm making you an omelet of four eggs, big omelet, and I learn that one of those eggs, just one, is rotten. But I go ahead and use it anyway. Because, I mean, it's just one, it's just a quarter, right? Just a, just a quarter of the omelet is rotten. Would you eat the omelet? No, you shouldn't. That would be a bad idea, right? Because even though just one egg was bad, its corruption spreads to the whole omelet. So Paul is saying, uh, purge, the, purge the, the leaven out, because you are unleavened bread. What in the world is he talking about? Leaven, Passover, etc.? If you were here when we went through Exodus, remember that there was this key festival that happens towards the beginning. That when God brings His people out of slavery, they are to sacrifice the lamb, the Passover lamb, and they are to paint its blood on the doors so that when God's judgment comes on the nation, it sees the blood of the lamb and passes over, for the name, pass over. Because God's judgment passes over those who are marked by the blood of the Lamb. While God's judgment is passing over, those who are inside, those who are protected by the Lamb's blood, are eating a meal of Lamb and unleavened bread. They are not particularly righteous people. They are not uh, any personally holier than their Egyptian neighbor. What makes them different is not who they are, necessarily, it makes, it's, it's the blood on the outside of the door. Why is Paul using that? Why is he, what's he saying? He's saying, judgment has already passed over you. You are God's people, so live like it. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The sentence of judgment has passed over you and fallen on Jesus. Live into that. You are unleavened bread. Be what you are. Purge the leaven from them. You don't need that. How do we, how do we boil this down and make it really concrete? The call of this passage is that we would no longer live in sin because sin no longer defines who we are. Jesus defines who we are. His gospel defines who we are. Not our sin. So Paul says, do away with it. Do away with it. May we be those kind of people who are so attached to Jesus, so enamored with Jesus, so trusting in Jesus, that we can be honest with each other. Not in a cruel way, not in a mean way, but Paul said tenderhearted. But that we would be honest and transparent about our own sin, and we would be forgiving with one another. And that we be a community that engages those outside. That sees sin for what it is. To accept something is not to approve of it. But we want to engage with those on the outside. And we do that when we remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God of heaven, thank you for this word and for your mercy. Would you bring concrete application to mind that you would know best how to live this reality out? We want to do it perfectly, Lord. We need your help. 
But increasingly, may we be a people who live with integrity, who engage with those outside, and remember and rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen.
was the message of the gospel and mission. Um, how do you go ahead or feedback the flag? Um, 
appeared in most of the lessons, but I got to do a little bit of the teaching on those lessons. We talked a little bit about you know, the parables. We talked about Jesus in the especially in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so it was it's just a good time. We take them to the beach and things like that. And but it's a good thing because we like to share the gospel with these very young children. So the next slide, but um, this is something that I really was a blessing to see was I got to see two weddings while I was there at the church. Um, the first was Aman Singh and Emma Gracefield got married. They're not pictured here. Um, but they were married in, I believe, I believe it was uh, November, but I'm not entirely sure. I think it was November. And this is Peter and Meg McGimsey. They were married in March. And the um, interesting thing about Peter is that he has a very rare disease. And it is actually one, it is called occipital horn syndrome. Yep, yep. Long story short, Peter had a very rough time. The seat that these two get married was quite a blessing. And they're very, they love the Lord, they love Christ, and they're very kind people. So, next slide. That's me, uh, Peter's brother Matthew, who's probably my best friend in the world, and Peter and May. But those three were probably my best friends over there. So, next slide. Uh, this was a big one that I got to do. In December, I was allowed to go to, uh, on a mission trip to Fiji. And the thing about Fiji is it's one of the most, you might not know this, it's one of the most Christian nations in the world. A hmm. um, majority of the people in Fiji are Christian, a lot, most of them you know, Pentecostal. But um, this was a small Pentecostal church in a village, a very rudimentary village in, you know, in the like off the beaten path kind of place. It's a very poor village. And they, the one thing that I noticed more about this was despite how small this village was and how impoverished it was, there was an absolute love and enthusiasm for Jesus Christ here. Um, being able to be in that vicinity with these children, with the the home families we stayed with and see how much they, how generous they really are, is very eye-opening. And um, that's just, that's me, and it looks like Matthew is over my shoulder there. That's one of the kids from the Chinese congregation is there. It's dead, and underneath the girl there is our friend Courtney from Gore. So just a bunch of different people from across the Islands with us. So next slide. That's uh, another picture of us. That's all the all of our guys that went with us to the with to Fiji. Uh, next slide. This is the entire Fijian village. Um, you'll find all of us kind of standing there in one place or another. The fella in the front, the bald, balding balding fella, is Garrett Jones. He was our, the leader that went with us to Fiji. He was the one, he organizes a trip every year. And he actually is going to start doing some pastoral counseling there for the mission. So that's something that can be in prayer for when it comes to it. Um, just pray that they, that they will get some good gospel teaching, that they'll get some good pastoral training, and that more people will be able to go to Fiji to, to worship with these amazing people. Um, uh, lastly, this
long job promise. The only picture I could find of him, he runs what is called the Race for Pakistan mission. It's a mission in, in the country of Pakistan of over 300 churches that are regularly persecuted every day. In fact, he's told me he has a picture of him and they're carrying AK-47s with just trying to get back and forth to back and forth to their church. So people will go there, they suffer regularly, they need regular prayer, and I can actually uh, forward anybody that's interested, I can forward the daily or the weekly, monthly news newsletter that he sends out to you if you want to add that to your prayer list. But yeah, that was basically the kind of the ministries that I was able to be part of. Obviously, other things, I was kind of the church custodian. I was uh, I mowed the grass, washed the cars. Uh, I helped put in a playground. I don't know why I forgot to put that in there, but I, I helped put up a playground for the kids. It was a year of service, more than anything. I was privileged to be able to go and once again, I thank you all for that, and I thank you for this time. If you have any more questions for me, I'll be available after the service. Tell my mom says when you go. Thank you guys for this time, and uh, pray for New Zealand. Pray for New Zealand, pray for Fiji, pray for Pakistan, pray for our world, because we have every, everyone needs it. So, thank you all. Stand and sing the song. Praise God from